The past few weeks, we've been talking about cultivating and letting go. It's this idea that we're exploring throughout Lent. A reality that I learned in my days of trying to garden a little bit is that sometimes the things that need to grow, well, they require pruning. And it was this novel concept that as I'm uh, learning how to tend the garden, I was just so happy my tomato plant, you know, doubled in size after I put it in the ground. And I didn't realize that, you know, pruning it well could help it bear fruit even more and have better, bigger, better tasting tomatoes, right? And I just didn't realize that concept. But it just makes so much sense. And I've had mentors tell me that, Brian, if you want to grow, you have to have margins, right? You have to have margins. You have to have the space for growth in your life in order to grow in our lives. So we've been exploring this idea throughout Lent that many of us have given up a practice and hopefully been trying to cultivate something new in our devotional walk with God during this time. And we began also on what what does it mean to let go of things in our lives and let go of the idea that we have to control everything. You know, a few weeks ago, we had the story of the mother hen, where Jesus uh, almost seemingly contradicts this idea that many of us want to be the, the mother bear that protects our children from any harm that will come their way. And yet, God wants us to give up, let go of that sense of control and instead cultivate love and peace outside of this, you know, whatever it is that we can kind of fix ourselves. And we've continued that story, and this morning what I love about this passage is I don't care who you are or how you walked into this sanctuary or are participating with us online, I bet you will, like, relate to one of the characters in this story. And it's the reason I love this story so much, that there are different times in our lives when we feel like different characters. And I think that each one of these characters, they had to learn to let go of something and to cultivate something individually. And at the same time, I think there's this theme around all of them as a family and and what that looks like. And and if you ever want to explore this, I'm just going to throw this book out there because I love this book. It's by an author named Henry. Hey, Koenig, can you bring me down a little bit? An author named Henry Nouwen. Henry Nouwen, uh, he was a writer, and he's wrote many written me good books, but one of the ones I I love the most is The Prodigal Son. And he uh, looks at this Rembrandt painting and depicts the story from each of the characters. So I'm really just giving you some cliff notes (laughs) on this. If you ever want to explore it, or maybe we'll do it as a sermon series later. But but just to give you just a frame of reference on on what's happening in this story, right? And this time, I mean, it's this audacious claim that this son of a prominent, relatively prominent family, have enough to have servants and other things going on in their house, goes to his dad and says, Dad, I know that when you die, I'm going to get part of the land and everything, but I want it now. Right? I want to know. I want to live life large. I don't need college. I don't need all those things. I'm going to go off and I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to enjoy myself. And yet he then finds himself, right? What happens? He finds himself in there's a famine that hits. He squanders his money on just foolish, terrible mistakes. And he bet too much. He, you know, drank too much. He did all the things too much in life. And then he comes to this pivotal moment where he has to give up this sense of, like, I got this on my own, because I'm sure he had that, right? You know, he wandered off on his home, going to go live life. He's going to go make it bigger than all those people in his local town. Never would have thought of him. He's going to be driving the yacht home or whatever it is. And then give up on that idea and then go back and say, I just want to work in your house, Dad. I just want to work in your house, Dad. 
And then what's the dad do? The dad, who you would expect, right, would be the one that would, you know, be ready and scolding or, you know, whatever it is, that, or just happy to see him, but, you know, yeah, you can work for me because you, you took a lot of my money, right, and you wasted a lot of my money. He does the exact opposite of what you might expect. Instead, it kind of like leaves this sense that the father is waiting in the distance, waiting in the distance, or waiting to watching the son, like almost every day, right, getting up and just looking off and maybe praying or thinking about his son and just hoping, hoping that he would see him again. And then when he finally does, he gets so excited, he, he runs out and meets him, doesn't even let the son come home and gives him all the things that the son needed. Or not needed, but all the things that the son needed to know that he was, in fact, beloved by the father and that nothing in their relationship had changed, which is just so powerful. And then you have the third son, right? I know I'm rehashing the story, but the third son is, I like to say, I feel like many of us might experience this, right? If you, especially if you have a wayward brother or wayward sister that's done something in your life, and you're the, the, the predictable one, the reliable one, that you've, the one that everyone's relied on, and then all of a sudden, you know, brother or sister comes back, and all of a sudden mom, dad are treating brother and sister just like you. And inside of you, you love them, and you're excited, they're here. But at the same time, you also know that they've been given a lot over and over and over again, right? And it's just like, how many times you, you're enabling them, really, is what you're doing, right? You know that feeling that you might have? You're enabling them just to make these poor mistakes. You know, those, that's, I imagine that's what the older brother's feeling, right? It makes it kind of simplistic, I think, that he you know, just seems really jealous. But I think there's some real honest, like, just natural anger in that moment. And the fact that he hadn't been able to have a party and all of a sudden there's this giant party going on. It's a scene that we can relate to on a number of levels, but as we look to what each of the characters is having to learn to give up for a moment, having to learn to give up, I imagine it might press home just a little bit. So take, for example, the sun. Take, for example, the sun. And if you have been in the situation where you have made just a terrible decision, I mean, maybe it's that you blew up on a family member or your spouse. You know, like one of those moments that you just get so angry that like the words, you don't even your mind and your heart, it just doesn't even make sense. It's just like you're just spewing out fire just because you're so mad, right? Just in the moment, only to wake up the next day or, you know, calm yourself a few hours later and just be like, oh, what did I say, right? What did I say? And, and then it's not just that, though, right? Because it doesn't just end with that feeling. That feeling lingers, you know? Perhaps even if it was a mistake that you made that you, you wish you never had made. You look back at it five, ten years down the road. I mean, I can think of mistakes that I made when I was in college. I say, I can't believe, I can't believe I did that. And when I feel that, I almost like get that like, like gut-wrenching feeling like, oh, gosh, what was I thinking? What was I thinking? I can't believe I would do that, to say that to someone, or get that angry, or I can't believe I would, you know, risk it, my money on Bitcoin, you know, <laughs> whatever it is. And you look back and you say, I, I, I'll never go there again. And the, the thing about it is that you can have those thoughts in yourself. But when someone else, and, and my wife Ashley will remind me of things that I have said. I remember one time uh, I w we were driving, we were dating, and we were driving up to Tahoe to go see a friend of mine, and it was the beginning of our relationship. And uh, I had been dealing with some baggage of my previous girlfriend who, like, 
you know, kind of just like left all of a sudden, and I was like insecure about that. And uh, we were talking, we were in the car, and she was getting upset, and she didn't want to share what she was upset about. And I just go to her, I go, if you don't want to talk, this is over. <laughs> and I look back at myself, I'm like, what was I thinking when I said that to her? I was acting out of my own insecurity. Well, she'll remind me of that story here and there. And somehow she looks at that story and she loved that about me, that I was honest. But every time she tells that to a friend, I get that feeling, right? Again, and I'm like, oh, what was I thinking when I said that? That was awful of me. Come on. Like, Hudson, never do that to someone you're dating, right? Don't go there. But anyway, the idea is that when you are confronting that with someone else, it takes this sort of letting go of that feeling of pride that you like have things together because you're reminded of this deep flaw that you've had. And so when someone else reminds you of that, it's really difficult, isn't it? It's just really difficult to see yourself in the mirror the problem is, it's not just to see yourself in the mirror. It's to forgive yourself in the mirror. The youngest son was learning how to let go of pride and to accept love and forgiveness, to cultivate that within himself. And how powerful is that for many of us? We've all been there in our lives. And perhaps you're there right now, wishing that you could look yourself in the mirror and forgive those moments that are ultimately unforgivable. In ancient culture, a son to go to his dad like that would basically to be to say to your dad, I wish you were dead, get up and go. I wish you were dead, and then get up and go. And then to come in front. Come before them. See yourself and your actions face to face letting go of pride, cultivating love and forgiveness. And then the father, right? Can you imagine the father, what the father was going through? I mean, many of us often associate the father to God and to love, and I, and I think that's an, an important way to do it, but I just think of, myself, of putting myself in those, the shoes of the father, who has a son that has just run off and squandered everything. And I know that we have some parents in the room that this has happened in your life. And what do you do in those circumstances? Uh, one, of the, one of my favorite stories of an example of what this might look like real life is uh, a writer and kind of enthusiast, Bob Goff. He writes about like love and all these things. He's a really funny guy. But he tells this story. I was at this conference virtually last fall, and he told this story about how his daughter did what every, daughter, like every child eventually does, right? Wreck your car right? Just kind of happens. I remember in high school, my buddies like rolled the truck. I mean, it, it, maybe not wreck your car, but fit, you know, something like that happens in the life of raising children, you know? Just unexpected, devastating. You don't know what you're going to do. And so he tells the story of his daughter that just comes home and is just so, uh, you know, raw. She's so sad. Dad, dad, I, I wrecked the car. I wrecked the car. I got in an accident. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. And just keeps going. And he goes into the garage and she's like, what's he doing? And he grabs a shovel and he hands it to her. <laughs> she's like, what in the world? I'm digging my own grave here, you know, like, and he goes, go out into the backyard take five steps from this tree and dig right there. So, you know, she goes, not really knowing what was there, and she goes and she starts digging. All of a sudden, she hits the jar, hits the jar, and pulls out this jar, 
opens the jar, there's a note inside, and goes, reads it, and it says, I forgive you. And he looks at her, and he goes, I dug that hole and put that jar in there a few weeks before you were born, because I knew this day would come. How beautiful of an example of that is that, right? Just this idea that he anticipated the, the child doing the wrecked car, whatever that was going to look like, and, and knew that there would be a pivotal moment when his child would need to hear, you were loved before you were even born, period, and no matter what. And think about what a parent who makes that decision or just in your relationships as you go about, you know, friendships or whatever, to make a decision to forgive someone before. You have to let go of control, don't you? We've been talking about for a few weeks this idea of being the mother bear, right? You got to let go of that because a child's going to make a mistake. A friend's going to make a mistake. A spouse is going to make a mistake. A colleague is going to do something that you're going to feel like you can't come back from. And, and there will be times when that might happen. But, but to begin with a posture of forgiveness first is a powerful, powerful testament of love. And so how might you kind of put the jar in the ground ahead of time? Let go of the need to control those situations, to correct people when they've been wronged, and instead just lavish love on someone. And then the older brother had to learn to let go too, didn't he? Older brother had all those feelings, and they were very good feelings, by the way. Having been a, a, one of, I, I remember uh, growing up, my brother had made some really big mistakes, and I had, you know, gone into the church, and all of a sudden I was, like, doing, like, youth group and young life, and I was the, you know, the good kid. I, my parents never had to worry about drinking, never had to worry about any of those things when, after I became a Christian. <laughs> Before that, they might have worried a little bit about all of my trajectory and everything, but when I was, I was later in high school, they didn't worry about any of it. And I remember my brother was just making a few mistakes. He, he was a, in swimming. My dad was a swim coach, and he, like, you know, you know, just yelled at my dad in the middle of a swim meet, and I was like, if I just questioned my dad sometimes, I ended up going to my room, right? You know, like, what in the world? How does this happen? And so he would be offered forgiveness for things, and I would think to myself, what? Like, what? You know, like, you got mad at me for not doing the dishes, and I'm grounded, and yet this happened, and you're not doing anything? So I feel that feeling sometimes, and it's a real feeling. But you know what that feeling is built up on? It's that sense that, we, and we've been talking about this, and I've talked about it over and over again. It's this idea that what you do earns something in life, right? So because I, I did well in school, because I was making good choices, all of those were reasons, of course, anyone would just pat me on the back because I was amazing at everything I did, right? <laughs> And it's this idea that if you're not self-aware enough to realize your own flaws, you won't be able to acknowledge and invite someone else that has flaws into your midst. And, and the oldest child, you know, specifically Jesus is kind of looking at the, at the Pharisees and the scribes, you know, straight in the eye, right? you can see him telling this story, and all of a sudden, he looks at them and says, and the oldest brother, let me tell you what he did. 
Because they thought they had everything figured out. And they knew God's law and how to live it. And they were in the right. And the other people just need to learn how to live the law. It's just clear as day. Do these things, period. And then Jesus seems to invite people to a third way. A way of relying on God's love. Because the older brother, older brother had to remember in the same way the younger brother. You are beloved even before you did all those things. His things weren't wrecking the car. But his things were the good things that build us up to feel like we've earned that love. And in either circumstance, the love is there. And so, are you the older son who, you know, feels like you've done a pretty good job and, you know, you've earned, earned these things in life that you have or earned your place at the seat next to God? Or are you the younger son that has a hard time believing that, you know, everything we talk about with God's love and grace is, applies to that area of your life? And I bet each of us can relate in the room. And the thing is, is it's not just us. It's in the community around us, too. It's in our, our neighbors, and it's in our, the people that we encounter in the stores. There, I, one of those two, especially, one of those two sons. So how do we be a people that learns to accept our belovedness by letting go of that pride, cultivating forgiveness, or by letting go of that sort of pride <laughs> and cultivating reliance? Because that's really what the older brother had to do, right? Learn to cultivate this idea that he was reliant on God even though, or reliant on the Father's love, even though he didn't, it wasn't the things he did that earned it. To be driven out of our mistakes or out of our good choices. And then all of us, I think, find ourselves in the seat of that Father figure, learning to ex extend the love that we receive to our spouse, our children, and our neighbors, everyone we encounter. This lavish love. It must be so embarrassing for the father to have had his son walk out on him. But he didn't seem to care about any of that. All, all the father seemed to care about was that the youngest son knew that he loved him. And then in the interaction with the oldest son, all the father seemed to care about was what? That the oldest son knew that he loved him. So how might we let go of the pride that might, you know, make us think that our posture or, you know, the head of the household, whatever that is, or our jobs or our ranks, it's not the most important. What's the most important? Helping others know that they're loved. 
So cultivate this extravagant generosity of God's love and letting go of this pride, of the sense that title, what you've accomplished, or the pride that's there with the guilt of failure too. So let's be a people that look in the mirror and don't see (laughs) the blemishes necessarily, although they may be there, but looks in the mirror and sees what God sees through God's lens, that you are God's beloved, and then is put on that same lens as we see each other and the world so that all of God's people might know that they are too God's beloved.